Rude Awakenings, Chapter 12, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. After recuperating at Wat Thai Nalanda, Nick and Achan have set out to walk to nearby Rajgir. Rajgir is the site of the bamboo grove, the first land donated to the Sangha, and of Vulture's Peak, where the Buddha often chose to reside. Chapter 12 Letting Go Achen Suchito By the time we reached Rajgir, we were almost running, striding very briskly into Rajgir to arrive at the Burmese Vihara in time for the meal, which would surely be occurring around 11 o'clock. The town of Rajgir was clearly marked by a line of hills that rose out of the plain that had been visible from Nalandar, fifteen kilometres away. At last, something to rest the eyes upon, something to give rise to the impression, however illusory, that there was somewhere to get to. The first sign that the world might have an end to it, since the glimpse of the Himalayas six weeks previously. Those blue hills promised a cool vantage point over the tangle and swelter of the world. The Buddha, born within the sight of the Himalayas, must have loved this place. In King Bimbisara's capital, then called Rajagaha, he was a welcome and respected guest. When he was not staying with the Sangha in the bamboo grove, the park that the king had given him just outside the town, he would have been living in those hills on Vulture's Peak. From that crag he could have looked down over the town and the forested plain with the great birds slowly wheeling below him. To arrive at such a serene place within oneself is difficult. For the pair of us to feel balanced and calm simultaneously, for more than the occasional delightful moment, was well-nigh impossible. Mostly it was like flying with a broken wing, and in that state we did absurd things. For no real reason we had dallied on the way, with a stoned sadhu in a bat-infested temple, and later in a nearby village where a shopkeeper had implored us to stop and have tea. Then, having subscribed to the being-with-what-turns-up mode of thought, we switched back to destination fever, and found ourselves hastily pounded along the main road at, Nick timed it, seven kilometres per hour. A strange sense of foreboding accompanied the otherwise reassuring perceptions of the hills. Rajagaha had been the place of betrayal, of the struggle for power. The narratives in the Buddhist scriptures refer to two simultaneous conspiracies that came to a head in Magadha's capital, that of Devadatta, to wrest leadership of the Sangha from his cousin and teacher, the Buddha, and that of Ajatasattu, to take over the kingdom by disposing of his father, King Bimbisara. Having attempted and failed to take over the Sangha by implying that the Buddha was too old, Devadatta later made arrangements for assassins to murder the awakened one. 
When this failed, the assassins were all converted by the Buddha. He himself set a boulder rolling down from one of the crags to where the master was walking. It struck a rock and shattered, but a fragment had grazed the Buddha's foot. Rebuked and warned by the Buddha, Devadatta was ostracized from the Sangha and caused a schism by attempting to create his own order, one that would adhere to stricter standards than those advocated by the Buddha. In this way, he hoped to justify his desire to lead the order with the need to develop a purer lifestyle. Now, the Buddha was over the hill and it got soft. This too was unsuccessful. The master sent his two chief disciples to visit Devadatta's Sangha and in one night of Dhamma talks they won the bhikkhus back to the original path. Devadatta's friend, Prince Ajatasattu, had been more successful. His father had discovered and foiled one of his plots and having caught his son and pardoned him he abdicated in his favour. That wasn't enough for Ajatasattu. When he became king, he had his father imprisoned and later murdered. It became part of the family tradition. As Magadar waxed powerful and took over the Vajian confederacy and even Kosala, four generations of Ajatasattu's descendants murdered their fathers. Hatred is never cured by hatred, only through kindness. This is the eternal law. It might have been partly my association with Rajagarb, but I felt wrong. The race along the road was so absurd it was funny, but behind the events the vision was fading and little things were getting at me. Nick losing things, for example. Nearly every day he would lose something, a clock, a pen, an item of clothing, and he never seemed to take any steps to remedy the habit. Then it was not one day that he got the chanting right. Simple things like mixing Buddha up with Dhamma and chanting, I bow to the bummer. Maybe it was on purpose. Sometimes I doubted whether he was really into the spirit of the pilgrimage, dismissing the local people abruptly, but goggling over the bird life. These and other little things repeated over and again would chafe me like the continual rubbing against the blister. Such pettiness would make me feel annoyed at myself and brush it all away philosophically. Yet the irritations and denials were starting to merge into a dull despair. Why did it bother me? Why? It shouldn't be this way. I should be feeling light and inspired. Was any of this helping me develop toward awakening? In a daze I whirled into the Burmese Vihara behind Nick at 11.30. Glancing round I noticed a few buildings, a courtyard. We located an ancient Burmese bhikkhu, Uzayanta, in the main building, and an Indian man and his wife, with the manager and the cook, respectively. Food was being served for Bhante, but for us, no meal was available. It had to be ordered in advance, or something like that. The reason was irrelevant. 
It was obviously part of the grand plan to frustrate our every expectation. The manager advised us to go to the Minto Hotel. Something we wanted to give up right then and there. But caught in the momentum, we strode up and down the street with the minutes ticking by and no Minto Hotel to be found. A frustration in my heart wanted to scream. But Nick, bless him, eventually hustled us into some eating house with ten minutes to go and got them to dish up some food. The best I could manage was to control the surge of emotion and eat in silence. Not good at all. Nick Scott We went back to the Vihara after our meal, and the manager took us up to a room on the roof. We seemed to have the building to ourselves. Once we had washed, unpacked, and paid our respects in her less flustered second meeting with Venerable Sayanta, I went off to have a look around. Across the road from the Vihara was a large, flat, open area. It was perhaps 500 yards across, surrounded by a slight mound, raised some ten feet above the ground, and it had at least four games of cricket being played on it, as well as local people crossing it, and a small herd of goats trying to find something to eat in one corner. This, it seemed, was the remains of New Rajagaha, the city built at the time of the Buddha as the new capital of the kingdom of Magadha. The Buddha would have come here on his arms round when it was a thriving and very important city. The slight mound circling it was once the old city walls, and remnants of the towers beside the old city gates could still be discerned. I only knew all that, though, from later looking at a tourist leaflet. What it actually looked like was a big, barren public space, which, to the locals, is what it was. The ruins of New Rajagaha are on the edge of modern Rajgir. Beyond the cricketers and goats could be seen the start of the shops and marketplace. On the other side of the ruins, and beyond the Vihara, were the hills, the first break in the Ganges plain since we started walking. They rose steeply, with a narrow valley cutting into them opposite the Vihara. This valley was once the entrance to Old Rajagaha, the original capital of Magadha. Old Rajagaha had been protected inside the natural fortress of the hills, but during the time of the Buddha the kingdom had grown sufficiently that King Bimbisara felt confident enough to move the city out onto the fertile plain. The Rajgir hills are an outlying portion of the central Indian uplands, which start 20 miles further south. This rolling plateau, known as the Deccan, is an ancient area of worn-down mountains, much, much older than the Himalayas. On its northern edge, it has been dissected by rivers flowing down into the Ganges plain. As the sediment in the plain has built up, the leading edge of the uplands has been buried, leaving the outlying higher bits, 
like the Rajgir Hills, sticking out of the plain, rugged islands in a flat green sea of cultivation. The Rajgir Hills sweep round in an arc, with two arms trailing off together to the southwest as a double ridge. There are only three gaps through them to the flat area contained in the middle. They made the ideal protection for a capital city and were the reason the Kingdom of Magadha grew to prominence. The rocks of these hills are old and the soil so poor that in the past the hills were left as forests. They were still shown as such on my old 1940s maps, but by the time of our visit the demands for wood by the ever-growing population had denuded them. From the Vihara all I could see were bare stony slopes, rising up some 500 feet, scattered with the occasional boulder and rocky outcrop. But each evening lines of poor people, mostly women, would come into town past the Vihara with piles of wood on their heads, large bundles of long thin branches or long sticks made from split logs. They held them with one hand, the wood overhanging forward and back and rocking gently as they walked. The multitudes of the plains have to have fuel to cook their food and as they cannot afford coal or gas, they use wood, if they can get it. The poor people collect it for sale, cutting it as long sticks to feed into small clay fireplaces. When wood disappears completely from an area, they use dry cow dung mixed with straw. I remembered watching those lines of women each tea time when I last stayed at the Vihara. That was in 1974 when I was 21. I'd been in India for over a year and I was travelling alone. The friend I'd come with had stayed on in a Hindu ashram, but that hadn't appealed to me. I was put off by the emphasis on gurus and all that devotion. Buddhist meditation interested me, though, and I'd booked a place on a meditation course taught by a man called Goenka to be held in the Burmese Vihara at Rajgir. I'd arrived the night before it was due to begin, as had a pleasant young English public school chap. The next morning we sat together on the terrace, drinking tea, playing chess, being ribbed by an American for being so English, and watching the course assemble around us. Old Venerable Sianta was there, but only in the background, as the course was organised by a small group of Goenka's Western disciples. By the evening, over 150 Westerners had arrived, mostly in their twenties, and dressed in a great assortment of styles and colours. The early 1970s was a time when it was easy for the young to travel. There was full employment, and none of us felt any need to settle down to a career. India was a favourite destination, and if you were in India, you had to learn meditation. The Vihara couldn't have taken any more. We were sharing rooms, four in the one I was in, and we were knee to knee in the meditation hall. Goenka seemed a jolly, rotund and wise chap, sitting at the front on a small dais, beside his rotund Indian wife, and all he taught was meditation, which he presented in a very rational way. He referred to the Buddha and his teachings, 
but there were no Buddha images and bowing, or anything else I would have found hard to swallow then. The courses were ten-day intensive meditation retreats, each day scheduled with ten hours of sitting meditation, and we were supposed to be completely silent. Goenka would continually encourage us to keep at it. He would start each evening talk in his deep, mellow Indian voice, with phrases like, Three days are over. There are only seven days left to apply yourselves. It was jumping in at the deep end. Very difficult at first, but as long as you stuck at it, you were going to learn to swim. The meditation teaching was all about technique, three days of Anapanasati, focusing on the breath as a meditation object. That was followed by what Goenka called Vipassana meditation, slowly taking your awareness over the sensations in your body from the top of your head to the tip of each toe. Four times a day there was a one-hour period of maximum determination. I was very impressed with how the old students, as they were called, could sit perfectly still for the whole hour of these, while I went through agonies trying and failing to do it myself. During the course we'd meet the teacher in small groups to discuss our progress. I had overheard a Western Buddhist monk on the course ask Goenka what sensation he should concentrate on when speaking, to which Goenka gave a very detailed answer. When it was my turn, I asked the same question, in the hope he would treat me equally seriously. Goenka was not impressed. He just told me it was supposed to be a silent retreat. I hadn't been an entirely exemplary student on that first course. I had discovered, during one of the periods when we were supposed to be practising in our own room, that if I closed the shutters and lay on my back, a slight gap under the shutter allowed the reflected light from the sun to project a full, upside-down, faint image of the courtyard outside, onto the back wall of the room, like a home movie. The room was acting as a pinhole camera. It was like that for most of the morning, and I'd invite other students in, and we'd lie there watching the toings and froings of the amazing upside-down world. On this visit, I wanted to know if the image was still there, but the room was being used by a large family of Bengali Buddhists from Calcutta. The idea of trying to explain to them that I wanted to lie on my back in their darker room was just too much. I discovered something else, though, on this visit that proved just as evocative. When filling in the registration book, I looked back through it to see who might have stayed in the Vahara recently. Skipping through several pages filled with foreigners' names, nationalities and addresses from the past few months, suddenly there was a leap in time, and I was looking at the list of people on that meditation course I'd been on 18 years previously. For some reason, the Vihara had got this old book from somewhere and was using up the empty pages. It was eerie. One of those things you can dismiss as coincidence, but leaves you wondering at the deeper reverberations in this world. There was my name, 
second on the list. The chap I had been having tea with came first. The Western monk had signed his preordination name, Christopher Titmus, someone we were to meet again later. And I recognised several other names, others who, like me, had gone on to become old students of Goenka. I must have eventually done some 30 of those meditation courses, first in India and then in England when I returned. I followed the tradition for five years with several of their teachers. Eventually, though, I tired of all the emphasis on technique. I'd taken the meditation to the point where I was beginning to become familiar with the space of the mind, and the insights I had didn't fit in with what we were being taught. So I left and explored other forms of Buddhist teaching, ones that had all that nonsense like bowing, Buddha statues and monks that I would have had trouble with at first. I still feel a lot of gratitude to Goenka. He must have introduced tens of thousands to the path by now. On this visit to Rajgir, my experience was to be much less benevolent. It all started with that ludicrous farce stomping to town. As with everything else we tried to do at Rajgir, it wasn't that our approach was any different. We'd stormed into other holy places in the same way and been fed each time. It was just that we had become complacent. This time we enjoyed the stomping along and just assumed that if we made it in time, we'd be welcome. It came as quite a shock when having got there with no time to spare, we were turned away. It was a similar story on the second day when we tried to visit the Satapani cave somewhere up on the side of the nearest of the hills. For Ajahn Suchito, this cave was important because it was there, three months after the death of the Buddha, that the elders of the Bhikkhu Sangha met to agree on the teachings and the monastic rules. That is known as the First Sangha Council, a very important event in the Theravadan tradition, as supposedly the teachings and rules they follow to this day were all agreed upon then. For myself, I wanted to visit the Satapani cave to find out if this was the cave I'd visited 18 years previously, at the end of that Goenka retreat. I remember wandering across the fields with three others to climb up to a lonely black dot on the hillside. They told me it had been lived in by the Buddha, and we sat there together in silence. Then when the others had left, I bowed for the first time, to a small Buddha Rupa, in gratitude for what I'd received. So Ajahn Suchito and I set off in the morning for the Satipani cave, with what we assumed was plenty of time. We climbed the flights of stairs that started just beyond the Lakshmi Narayan Temple, a giant pink building that looked as if it had been turned out of an ornate jelly mould. As we got higher, we could see down into the temple, its hot baths heaving with fleshy humanity. The baths are fed by a hot spring. At the time of the Buddha, it ran into a secluded natural pool that he and his disciples used. It was popular then, but now it was so popular that one sight of the heaving mass of people made me drop the idea of a visit. 
It was difficult climbing in the heat, and we made pretty slow going. We stopped regularly to rest by the path, and once in a small Hindu temple where a priest demanded money as soon as we entered. Eventually we got high enough that the bare stony ground gave way to a scrub of a low coppice trees and spiny shrubs. Amidst it was a group of women cutting firewood, hacking at a regrown branches with long wide knives. Their saris were old, worn and grubby, and they had cheap plastic bangles on their arms, the bright colours contrasting with their dusty dark skin. They called to each other as they worked, but as we laboured up to them, they fell silent and moved off quietly, further away from the path. Soon after that, dripping with sweat, we had to admit defeat. We were never going to make it in time to return to the Vihara for the meal. So we turned and started back, on our way down passing a Jain pilgrim on her way up to one of the Jain temples that are on the summit of the seven main hills. Jains all seem to be from the merchant classes, rich enough to do a pilgrimage in style. This lady was late middle-aged, very overweight, dressed in a pure white sari, and she was being carried up by two men on a seat slung beneath a long pole that ran between their shoulders. The men doing the carrying were some of the same poor people as the women cutting the wood. They too were dark-skinned, small and scrawny-looking, and their faces were knotted with the strain as they climbed the stairs. At that point I still hadn't realised that our luck had changed, and I made another attempt to visit the Satapani cave that afternoon. Ajahn Suchito had the sense to stay behind. I left it till the cool of the late afternoon, and did actually get as far as the cave, a big rock overhang with dark recesses, and not the place I had visited previously. But I had no time to actually look at anything, let alone take in the spectacular view. Two policemen were rounding up the visitors, as it was time to go back. I tried arguing with them, but to no avail. Bandits roamed the hills, and it was their job to protect the tourists. I had just one glance at the view over the vast plains stretching to the north, with more time, I was certain I could have spotted the places we'd walked through. Then I turned round and trudged back, along with three Japanese travellers totting video cameras, the policeman bringing up the rear. So much for visiting the Satapani cave. Another setback. Achen Suchito. The new moon was December 16th. In the afternoon I wandered around the nearby bamboo grove. It was just a little way along the main road toward the gap in the hills that separated old and new Rajagaha. Right next to it stood a huge and immaculate temple of the Nipponzan Myohyoji. The monks and their supporters had done a wonderful job in restoring and caring for the ancient park. The grove had no buildings, it never had, but there was a lovely pond in the centre of the towering stands of bamboo. It had been a very special gift. 
the first gift of land to the Buddha and an indication of the devoted support of one of the most powerful kings of the region. Even before Gautama's enlightenment, Bimbisara had recognised the quality of the young recluse and had asked him to return when he had realised his goal. Within a year or two of the awakening, the Buddha returned as promised and the king brought his retinue out to pay the respects and listen to the master. At the end of the discourse, all those present declared themselves to be the Buddha's disciples. The king's proclamation was particularly moving. As a prince, Lord, I had five wishes. Now they have been fulfilled. If only I might be anointed on a throne. That was the first wish, and it has been fulfilled. The second was, if only I might encounter a fully enlightened one. That was the second wish, and it has been fulfilled. The third was, if only I may be able to honour that blessed one. That was the third wish, and it has been fulfilled. The fourth was, if only that blessed one would teach me Dhamma. That was the fourth wish, and it has been fulfilled. The fifth was, if only I might be able to understand that blessed one's Dhamma. And that too has been fulfilled. Lord, let the blessed one receive me as a lay follower who has gone to him for refuge for as long as breath lasts. It was painful to think that such devotion had not prevented the king from meeting a cruel death some thirty-five years later at the hands of his son. I turned away. Nobody was around in the nearby temple, so I drifted back to the homely Burmese Vihara. It was friendly now, and to judge from appearances had aspired to elegance a few years ago. The meal had been served on the table with a tablecloth, an old-fashioned shiny cutlery. The Indian couple were quiet, friendly and efficient. Bunte was jovial and animated. Antiquated pictures of holy places in Burma decorated the dining room. But now that had all given way to the power lust of the current military regime, like Cambodia and Tibet. What refuge had Buddhism provided for any of them? The vigil wasn't so bad. We were in two rooms up on the roof. I sat outside the room with the stars and the gloom. You can't control the mind. You can't not care about it. You can't grasp it. You can't forget it. Let go of it, recommended Ajahn Sumedho. It doesn't always work like that. I don't see where I'm holding on. Some moments it did all drop, and what was terribly me was seen as a pattern of mind created by the wish to be clear or certain or accepted. That wish always hindered the natural peace of the mind. 
and when a letting go occurred, everything was light. The self-importance of despair was humorous, and you wondered how you could have forgotten that. I'll remember and do better next time, chirps the mind, assuming ownership and authority, and thereby paves the way for the next black hole when it can't bring about the same process. The whole trap was set around I am, the need to get life under control by figuring it out or attaining something. This is deathlessness, the freedom of the heart through non-clinging, said the Buddha. So what was I stuck on this time? I needed to find a calm place where I could check things out. So, the day after, we decided to go up into the hills where things would be more conducive. It was in Iponza Myohyoji Stupa, the Santi Peace Stupa, up there. We'll probably have a few adjoining rooms where we could stay and thereby avoid being ordered off the hills by the police. The climb was reasonable enough beginning in the late afternoon. Nick couldn't bear to go around the long way via the road and the causeway, constructed apparently by Bimbisara as a convenient route to ascend to Vulture's Peak to see the Buddha. Instead, we had to take a shortcut, which involved following a narrow step path through the scrubby forest up the side of the hill. We even got to glimpse some giant blue antelope thing, leaving across our path into the scrub. A nil guy, Nick said. He was very pleased. I was pleased too. Then the path ended at a Jain shrine and we had to scramble through the scrub and thorn bushes trying to guess which direction the stupa lay in. That meant blundering around after Nick getting my legs torn, more painful floundering accompanied by inner mutterings. Eventually, just as the sun was settling behind the hills, its rays illuminated the peak of the stupa not far off. And so we arrived at the monument. The place spoke of, no, proclaimed peace and order, or at least order, created by some impressive technology and willpower. And it was quiet. Hardly anybody was about. Nick guessed that with the sun going down and the general bandit phobia, everyone had been ordered off the hill. Inside the temple we met the Chokidar, who had a little English. No monks were here. Tomorrow the nun would come, but tonight no one was here except him and three other Indian temple workers. It wasn't certain we were allowed to stay, but as it was now dark, we could at least stay the night. We could sleep in the shrine room and ask the nun when she came tomorrow. The shrine room was immaculate polished wooden floor, tiers of huge, finely wrought golden Buddha images cascading forward in pairs of diminishing stature. Somewhere in the middle of this galaxy of blessedness beamed most reverent Fuji, and above him the tumbling swirls of calligraphy proclaiming the sacred mantra, nam yo yo renge kyo But we've been through all that before. Here, it was silent. The four Indian workers sat reverentially behind us as we did our evening puja, 
and some meditation. Then they lay down on the floor, so we unrolled our mats and with our heads pointing toward the shrine, passed the night in periods of sleep, interrupted by the snoring of one of the workers. The morning brought a clear sky and a further opportunity to marvel at the workmanship of the temple and its idyllic setting. Things here would be as they should be, still and clear. The only uncertainty was the nun. The Chokidar was used to relating to her as his boss, so he was hesitant. Maybe we could stay, but maybe not. Maybe there would be some food, but... Meanwhile, he made some rotis and shared them with us. That made him relax. It seemed best for me, rather than Nick, to approach her. The Chokidar would go with me, introduce me, and explain the situation first. When the nun arrived, immaculately robed, she immediately took off her position beside the giant drum. It was all precise. She seemed elderly but upright. And my glimpse of her features before she dismissed us testified to a life of determination, duty and utter control. Physically, she seemed composed of a different substance than the bowed, supplicating Chokidar in his grubby workman's clothes. She granted him a couple of seconds of attention and me one glance. Eyelids flicked up in the motionless head. A negative monosyllable and a tightening of the lips. So, we were out. Fine. No having to fit into routines or take part in rituals that had no meaning for me or awkwardly go along with whatever the standards of etiquette were. Well, I never liked formality much anyway. She could keep her immaculate temple, her immaculate robes and her precision prostrations. The scrub and the dirt were good enough for me. Out there was Vulture's Peak. We wiled away the afternoon around the temple grounds to avoid being sent down by the police. As the sun lowered, though, we surreptitiously made our way to the crag where the awakened one had spent many a day and night in meditation. It was still light, but nobody was about. The remnants of a tiny temple still sat on the crag overlooking the valley that the ring of hills enclosed. My heart rose as we drew near. He had been here. His calm gaze had swept over those forested slopes and blessed the wildness. And below, just as I could now, he might have contemplated a pair of great birds slowly wheeling in the currents of air. With the merest flick or inclination of a wing, they would swing out to one air current and glide on another. Here, replete with understanding and compassion, the master had let his mind move through the realms of form and formlessness in complete equipoise. Here, his heart inclining to ways and expressions that would reach us in our tangle, he had taught the good law. Vulture's Peak lifted us together on a point of balance, we entered the brick rectangle that defined the temple, bowed, offered incense, 
and let the chanting pour out as it would homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one. The dwelling of an enlightened one is not a place to sleep. So when night dragged our minds down, we retreated a little way to the back of the crag. Nick found a cave, and I took shelter in a ring of rocks, resting in the place of vultures. Our morning puja back in the temple ruins preceded the dawn. While we sat there, the darkness, separated into sky and misty hill masses, paled and coloured into forest wreathed in mist beneath a tender sky, and then allowed the day to begin. With drumming, drumming, approaching from a distance, a familiar rhythm, and voices, Two figures were bounding up Bimbisara's causeway toward the crag, Japanese monks. Striding up the crag were Reverend Nakazoto from Vaishali and the monk from the temple in the town, beating hound-held drums. It was good to see them, grins and beams all round. They were on their way to Calcutta, and had stopped off to pay homage to Vulture's Peak. Ah, Dr. Scott, we are lucky. I was wondering how to cash your cheque. Now I meet you here. Reverend Nakazoto's grin widened. Nick had forgotten to sign the cheque that he had left as a donation to the temple at Vaishali. So there it was. Reverend Nakazoto dug it out of his shoulder bag, and Nick signed it right there, in the Buddha's dwelling place. It was all much too crazy for words. I watched them go bounding back down the causeway, back to their car, which would take them to Calcutta. Things went so easily for some. For us, another restless day had begun. More people would be coming soon. Already a man had approached us trying to sell us incense. We had to go down. But the long forested valley and the line of hills stretching peacefully southwest towards Bodgaya told us which way to go from here. At the bottom of the hill was a jumble of stalls for the tourists. We moved on toward the forest across what had been old Rajagaha, the jail where the old king had been imprisoned by Jatasattu, was still there. Betrayed, imprisoned, and deprived of food, the old king's only consolation was to gaze at Vulture's Peak through the window of his cell. But death by starvation takes too long. Eventually, Ajatasattu grew impatient and had his father's feet cut open and the wounds stuffed with salt. It speeded the process up. It was time to get out of this harsh town. 
Nick Scott. As we descended Vulture's Peak, I bought tea and some snacks as our breakfast from the hawkers who were on their way up, their day's wares hanging from poles across their shoulders. Then we crossed back through the stunted forest, heading for a forest rest house, one of the ones I'd booked in Patna. We might not be able to stay at the Japanese temple, but the rest house should be no problem. The Patna Wildlife Office had recommended it and assured me the forest officer would be delighted to see us. It was still early, and birds flitted about the scrub as we made our way. I kept stopping to look at them through my binoculars, and then hurrying to catch up Ajahn Suchito. When I spotted a rufous-backed shrike sitting on a bush, it was such a good-looking bird that I had to point it out to him, offering him my binoculars to take a look. To my surprise, he knew all about shrikes. He'd owned a bird book as a child and had learned all the names and pictures, and although he had never seen a real shrike then or since, he still remembered it. This was a revelation. Ajahn had, up until then, seemed so uninterested, dismissive even, about my enthusiasm for wildlife. I pondered as we went on that perhaps I might be able to share it with him, after all. The rest house wasn't far, and we arrived within an hour. It was a well-kept bungalow behind the house for the forest officer, with workshops and huts for the workers. It looked a great find, with a veranda and set about with its own small garden. We went next door to the forest officer's house to arrange to stay the night. He was a young chap with good English who seemed pleased to see us, until I mentioned the rest house. Then his face clouded. He told us we couldn't stay as he'd received no booking from the district office. I tried explaining that we had written to the district office, but it didn't do any good. He was adamant. He was also looking increasingly upset by having to turn us away. So I asked if there was another booking. There was. He was expecting his boss, the district officer. We met the district officer later. We'd hung on in the hope that there'd be room for us. After all, there were two bedrooms. But he had his family with him, and they were all staying the weekend. The institution of the rest house made a lot of sense when established by the British. Neat bungalows dotted about the district, where officials stayed on their horseback tours of duty. Now they had become a perk. The district office was no more than two hours away by official car, but the visiting official was to be housed and fed at the state's expense in a country bungalow that was probably better than the house he lived in. So we were out on our ear again. We'd have to leave Rajgir two days before we had planned. I hadn't even seen the bamboo grove or Jiva Kambavana, both places where the Buddha gave many teachings, never mind the Jain caves carved into the hillsides the city walls of old Rajgir that ride along the crest of further hills like the Great Wall of China, or the Indasala cave where the Buddha went to be alone and which was probably the cave I'd been to all those years ago. 
but it seemed we weren't supposed to stop in Rajgir. Well, at least we were heading into the forest. We'd have more time to enjoy that, and we would be sooner in Budgaya, our next stop, where we were expected by friends for Christmas. So we left the compound in the early afternoon and set off on a dusty dirt track that was wide enough for a jeep, but which appeared little used. The track dropped down to cross a dry riverbed, climbed the other side, and then wound its way through the forest, heading for Jetien. The forest officer had said there was a forest rest house there, where we could stay that night. This must have been the route the Buddha used when travelling from Bugaya to Rajgir. It was the most direct route, and the scriptures mention him stopping in Lativana, which is today's Jetien, on the way to Rajgir after his enlightenment. It would have been real forest then. Now it was heavily cut, and we were walking through a dense thicket of trees regrowing from their stumps. Not far along the track, we came upon a group of women returning to Rajgir with bundles of wood on their heads. As soon as they saw us, they dropped their wood and ran off into the forest. They did it without a word and hardly any sound, leaving the wood bundles as the only evidence that we'd really seen them. Further on we heard the steady thumping of an axe and then rounded a corner to see a man halfway up the stump of a small tree, cutting it even shorter. He immediately jumped down and also ran off with his axe into the forest. The disappearing people created an eerie feeling, compounded by the silence of the forest at midday. An hour's walking later, the forest got taller. There were still no full-sized trees, but the cut trees had regrown enough to give a semblance of real woodland. It was then that we came upon a group of six men, bending over the carcass of a large animal. These men did not run off, but instead looked up to watch us approach. As we did, we could see that they had been using axes to prepare poles for carrying the carcass of a water buffalo. Ajahn Suchito asked in Hindi what they were doing. They replied simply that the water buffalo had died. Looking back now, it's obvious that they were poachers, and that the water buffalo would have been a stray they had found and killed, one of the animals brought into the forest illegally for grazing. After we had left the men, the track began to climb. The scrub around us was getting taller, and we could see mature trees on the hillsides above us. We were at last getting into real forest, and I felt elated to be amongst nature again. So much so that I was caught up in a personal debate on whether I might ask Ashen Suchito to stop a bit, so that we could walk on later in the day when wildlife would be more likely to be about. Two evenings before, we had been climbing up to the Japanese stupa, and we had come upon a male nilgai, great blue-black antelope, the size of a domestic bull. That had been very exciting, and I was hoping to see more. I was so immersed in this, that when I glanced back, 
and thought I saw someone disappearing into the trees, it registered just for a second before I dismissed it. Achen Suchito. It was about expectation, surely. That was the heart of the problem. I was expecting India to live up to my projections of a spiritual place. What that seemed to mean was that it would allow me to stand back from it and feel balanced. And that was a demand that India refused to comply with. The way out, surely, was in letting go. Let go of getting a clear picture. Let go of wanting things to be my way. Especially as I didn't even know what my way was. Letting go. It feels like dying. It gives you the freedom to live without self-importance. I remember sitting in the garden of the forest rest house while Nick was engaged in the lengthy parleys with the officials. We were about to wander off through a forest supposedly infested with bandits. At one point, even talk of an armed guard arose, but one was not forthcoming. Oh well, I should prepare. There was nothing to prepare. Wait. I had a careful shave by touch, dipping the razor into my steel mug of cold water and fingering my chin and face. There. Ready to go into the unknown. We walked for an hour, my outer robe folded and tucked over the top of my bag. The bag was hanging on my left shoulder. Across my chest was slung the water bottle and mug so that they dangled by my right side. It was from behind me on that side this little chap approached. He got hold of my mug and as I turned he asked in Hindi where we were going. There were others with him. They were the men who had been sitting on top of the dead buffalo. To the next village, I said, as he tugged my mug urgently. What is it? Do you want this thing? It's only a mug. Then everything blew up. Nick turned round with a menacing expression on his face. Someone was tugging my robe on one side, while the first man was hauling frantically at the mug on its strap on the other. Three men charged at Nick, who was crouched boxer-style. He wheeled and hit them with his backpack, then ran off with the three of them in hot pursuit. I was being lugged in two directions simultaneously by the strap on my water bottle and on my bag. I could only try to get the stuff off and let them have it. But their pulling on it made it impossible. We were going round in circles, with their excitement spinning into frenzy. I had to stop this. Wait, wait! Let me get this stuff off. Momentarily they stood still. They all had axes and staves. The leader glared at me through twisted features and raised his axe. Funny how your mind goes clear when the options disappear. Why struggle? against the inevitable. 
the only freedom was to go without fear. I bowed my head and pointed the top of my skull toward him, drew the blade of my hand along it from the crown of my head to the brow, hit it right there. Something shifted. He backed off, waving his axe and muttering angrily. I stepped forward and repeated the action. Just give it away. Let it all go. Things settled. He lowered his axe. I slipped off the bag and the water bottle and stepped back. The three of them began excitedly picking over the treasure. I imagined that they'd rummage around, find there was nothing there of any value and run off. Two of them picked up the gear and scurried down the track away. I felt shaky and sat down. Better keep cool. I started chanting softly. Then Nick ambled along with a smile, but without his pack or assailants. I've hidden the money. Bunte, are you all right? His return signalled further frenzy. As his assailants returned, the men charged at him with their sticks and began swinging blows. Nick caught most of them on his arms. All right, all right, I'll show you where. And the mob had streamed off into the forest by the time that I got to my feet, leaving me with one lad who sullenly resisted my attempts to strike up a conversation. But he was mellow compared with the older men when they returned, without Nick or the bags. They jumped on me and pulled off the bag that I had around my neck containing the relics and the Buddha image. They ripped off the waistband that was threaded through my pouch. They clawed under my sabong and dragged the passport out of another pouch that was hanging round my waist. Then they were off, with the loot tied up in bundles on their heads. The leader turned round and said, Your bags are over there, pointing into the forest. Fine. Okay, I said in a vaguely warm way. The forest went back to silence as usual. A sunny day, with the forested slopes on either side. I took off my shoulder sash and made a belt out of it for my sabong. Then I wandered into the scrub from which they had just emerged. Nick! Which direction? I just went deeper. Nick! And louder. Nick! Nick! Maybe they'd killed him. Or at least left him unconscious somewhere in a pool of blood. Nick! Nick! As I probed deeper, the land sloped upward and came to a crest from which I could look over the edge of a ravine to a scrub-filled valley. I scanned back and forth for some sign. Nothing. Nick Scott. After the robbers had started to pull up Ajahn Suchito's belongings, three of them turned on me. They came down the track towards me, each with a wooden stave in hand, 
and one of them with an axe. I've never been one for giving in to people easily, even when it was the sensible thing to do, and my reaction this time was typical. I wasn't going to let three small Indians rob me without some resistance. As they approached, I lunged at one of them. He backed quickly away, and then I turned on another, who then ran into the forest. I chased him, but as soon as I was out of sight, I cut away and took off. I'd escaped. I ran on through the forest, crashing through the trees and the spiny shrubs, oblivious to the cuts they were giving me. As I ran, I kept thinking that I should hide the valuables before I was caught. I was panicking, and I used the first thing I found, an old rabbit burrow. Into it I stuffed the camera, our money, and my passport. I quickly covered them with earth, then got up and ran on. The trees suddenly ended at an abrupt drop. I was on the top of a long scree slope that ran down to a dry stream bed, far too steep for me to climb down quickly. I stopped and bent double and panting heavily, tried to think what to do. There was no sound of them coming after me, and I realised I was probably now safe. I'd escaped, but I'd also left my companion in the hands of six Indian bandits. The sensible thing would have been to stay put, but I was worried about what might happen to him. I was in two minds as I stood there panting. Eventually, my heart won over my head, and I went back. I hid my pack in a hollow and cautiously made my way back to the track. I couldn't hear anything. As I neared the forest edge, I spied Adam Shatito sitting with a young lad beside him. Beyond them, down the track, were the others, milling about and looking into the forest. Evidently, they lacked the courage to go in after me. As soon as I cautiously emerged, the young lad shouted, and they came running, all shouting and in quite a frenzy. This time I stood there submissively, but they still surrounded me and started hitting me with their sticks. One of them was shouting and gesturing, Where is the money? Where is the bag? I tried to say that it was okay and I, I'd take them, but my previous resistance had worked them into too much of a frenzy. They drove me, like some poor water buffalo, through the forest to the place where I'd hidden the bag. The whole way the blows continued, and even when they had the bag they didn't stop. The same man as before shouted at me something I didn't understand. He pointed at the hollow where the bag had been. He wanted me to get down there. But by then I was too frightened. I thought they might kill me. And if they did, they'd also kill Ajahn Suchita. So, with my heart in my mouth, I leapt over the cliff and rolled and slid down the scree. It was a long slope, dotted with thorny shrubs, that cut me as I slid past. I ended up against some bushes at the bottom. I pulled myself up and looked back. Two of them were still coming after me, picking their way down the slope. I was badly cut and bruised. I'd hurt my leg, 
and I stumbled as I tried to run off. I couldn't run. I realised my only chance was to hide. They would take longer to get down the slope than me, and I reckoned I had just a few minutes. I limped and stumbled out of sight, then crawled under a large, dense bush. I lay listening, my heart pounding. At first I heard them coming closer, then nothing. I was terrified, laying there waiting, in fear of my life. Dampness spread in my crutch. The fear had made me piss myself. I must have been there for fifteen minutes with nothing happening when I heard Ajahn Suchito calling my name. I was still frightened and didn't come out of cover, first calling back, Have they gone? Only when Ajahn Suchito called out, Yes, did I emerge. He was standing at the top of the slope, bare-chested, with just his sarong on. The rest of his robes had gone. My trousers and shirt were torn, the shirt so badly that it was in shreds, and I was covered in blood. Still, what I felt was a flood of relief that we'd both survived. Achen Suchito Letting go was good. It was good being alive. We exchanged stories and chuckled a lot. Destinations, plans, ideas about the purpose of the journey. It was all so ludicrous now. Funny to have held on to this stuff for so long. When it comes down to it, nothing really matters. All you can do is die. What you're going to do anyway? It was hilarious. I suggested we rummaged around to search for the bags. Nick checked the hole that he had stashed his camera and the money in. It was empty. After a while we came across Nick's yellow plastic mug. We saluted it with glee. Then the cylinder of maps chopped up like salami, its mutilation testifying to the pointless feverishness of the violence. But Nick picked up the mug like it was an antique and tenderly examined the brutalised maps the way a doctor might examine some mangled victim of a car crash. I think I can salvage these. We even found his binoculars hanging in a tree where he'd thrown them. Well, well. That was enough for the day. The sun was going down, and we needed to get back to Rajgir before nightfall. Back to the Burmese Vihara, where there'll be friends. Everything was so light. No bags, no money, no passports. We were trotting along, ragged, laughing. But by the time we drew near to human habitation, the evening had descended, and dark, intense faces peopled the gloom. Hawkers and rickshaw drivers looking for customers jeered at us as we hurried by. We had to get to the Vihara quickly. By the time we got there, we were racing. 
Yeah.